we pray as we look at God's word together? Lord, we thank you that we can come worship you this morning. And Lord, we just really uh, ask for your, just your Holy Spirit now, Lord, as we look at your word together, as we look at just some of what's been sort of shared, Lord, across those two chapters at the end of John. Father, as we look at those post-resurrection uh, appearances of Jesus, Lord, to his disciples and the way he revealed himself and the effect Lord, of meeting with these disciples after he rose again. Father, I really ask that your Holy Spirit will just take these words, Father, and that we would all hear what we need to hear, that our hearts will be touched in a way that we need them to be touched this morning, Father. We're all broken one way or another, and that we all need to be made whole uh, one way or another. And we pray for wholeness and for healing, and as we look at your word, that your Spirit will just um, bring together what's broken this morning, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our house, um, people don't ask for normal birthday presents, um, except me, of course. Um, Hannah Marie, a few years ago, um, she's the worst, actually, always asked for something slightly unusual. And uh, a few years ago, she asked for a metal detector. And uh, don't tell her I'm telling you this story. She won't like it. She's very disappointed in me. Anyway, and so she asked for a metal detector. Now, being the good parents that we are, well, mainly me, my first response was, oh, what a ridiculous waste of money that'll be. And, uh, and I'd like to say that I've been proved correct. Anyway, so she asked for a metal detector, having seen it on the telly. And, uh, and so we decided that we would buy her a metal detector. Much searching went in to find a reasonable one that didn't look too cheap, that actually would detect metal. Anyway, and so we got one. We dutifully rushed out to buy her a metal detector and, uh, for Hannah Marie for her birthday. And it turns out, sadly, that buried treasure isn't as a... Uh, you know, common around these parts as you might think. Um, I think she was hoping that, this was a few years ago, I might add, uh, I think she was hoping there might be some pirates might have buried something around Pishabury. And, um, but sadly, if you're thinking of buying a metal detector, don't bother. There's really nothing. There's no kind of gold from the Black Pearl or something. Anyway, but I remember, once we bought it for her, we did have a spate of going out and digging up gardens and, uh, and parks and all sorts of things. And I remember many times she'd be following the beeps around her little machine, desperately trying to find buried treasure from one-eyed, whatever, and one-legged jack or something, and uh, never quite getting anywhere and getting quite frustrated with it, bless her, until one day when I can't remember where we were, some park somewhere. I don't think we were supposed to have been there with a metal detector, but we didn't worry. Anyway, and she discovered some cash, and, uh, and she was over the moon. And in that moment, I've never seen somebody's face more light up than Hannah Marie's. She held, I think it was a pound. might have been pound fifty. It was like Christmas had come very early for her. And, uh, and in that moment, she didn't care about all the effort. She didn't care about the cold. And she didn't care about the mud and the dirt all over her clothes. I did. <laughs> but that's a different issue. Anyway, and it reminded me, and it reminds me when I think about that moment, of that first moment when you discover... Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. I don't mean the first time you start coming to church or the first time you join a connect group or, or the first time you help out or something. That first time you really get it. That first time you really understand that Jesus Christ is alive right now. That first time you really feel his presence is a little bit like that feeling when she dug up pound fifty and thought, this is better than everything else that's currently all over me and going on in my life. It just reminds me of that moment when we come to meet Jesus, that moment when someone tells you that Jesus not only lived and died for you, but he rose again. And then you have that moment when you become a Christian, you ask Jesus into your life, um, because attending church is good, but there needs to be that moment when you say, yes, I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. I believe he's God's son. You ask him 
into your life. And then once you've done that, you have that, you have that moment, don't you? Sometimes it's straight away. Some people have that kind of... Some people it's a bit later. Maybe it's during a bit of worship. Maybe it's um, during a Bible reading you're doing or some prayer somewhere. And you just have that moment where you feel the very presence of the King of Kings. And it's different for all of us, I'm sure. But it really is treasure beyond measure. And it puts everything else into perspective and you think, oh, that's what they're talking about. That's what that feeling was on a Sunday morning. I get it. It's Jesus with me, alive, right next to me. Discovery of the risen Lord Jesus is life-changing. In the New Testament, uh, there's a, a very well-known man came, named Paul. Paul the Apostle. You may have known him as Saul, who became Paul. Had a road to Damascus experience. You'll know the story well, uh, I guess, many of you. And he was a man who was totally... Uh, anti-Jesus, if you like. He thought he was pro-God, but actually he wasn't. But he was very religious. He was top of his social ladder in the, in the society Paul was in. Uh, it was a religious society. We're an individualistic society, but it was a religious society. And the more religious you were, the more higher up you were in pharisaical circles, the more of a celebrity you were. And Paul was right at the top of the social ladder. And then one day, he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and his life takes a 180 degree turn and, and this isn't even what we're talking about this morning his story but I want to read to you the first 11 verses of a book of Philippians because he writes to the Christians in Philippi and he wants to tell them all about how he met the risen Lord Jesus and what difference knowing Christ has made in his life how his priorities have been different and he says this further my brothers and sisters Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. People were coming in and they were changing the gospel message. He says, watch out for them. For it is we who are the circumcision. He's talking about the Jewish people. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. He's talking about being a follower of Christ now. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, that's what he used to do before he became a Christian, and as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. And then he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, Paul says, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And there's a lot in that. If you've never read it before, it's good to go home and think about what Paul said. What Paul's saying was, before I knew Jesus, I was at the top. I had all this respect, all this dignity. People thought I was something. And then I met Jesus and I gave it all up because what I thought I had was rubbish when I put it in comparison to the treasure 
of knowing the resurrected, living Jesus Christ. John Stott, a well-known Christian leader who sadly passed away some years ago, said, we live and die, but Christ died and lived. And this is the heart of the Easter message, isn't it? That Christ died for us, not just that Christ died for us, but that Christ lives now that Christ lives for us now in heaven. This is our message that Christ is alive and he is alive forevermore. There was a man who stood at Speaker's Corner over in London some years ago debating Christianity. You know, you stand at Speaker's Corner and you, you sort of give your, your, sort of your, your speech, I guess, and people shout back and they shout things at you. Sometimes they throw things they're not supposed to. And they had that debate, don't they, with people on Speaker's Corner and it's a, a thing to go and do. And this guy was debating the truths of Christianity. And one man finally put his hand up and said, how can you know for certain that Jesus is alive? And the guy at Speaker's Corner looked at him and he said, I'll tell you this, because I was talking to him for half an hour this morning. Christianity is not a lifeless, ritualistic religion. Some people make it that, and they really ought not to. It's not about how many times you do something or what you don't do. It's about who you follow. It's not about do this and don't do that. It's a living, beautiful relationship with God himself, made only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if that's how you see your relationship with Jesus this morning. It's so easy to fall into ritual and religion and think, I've got to do that. If I don't do this, God will stop loving me. If I'm not attended enough, God will stop saving me. That's not true. God wants you to do those things because you love him. And you want a healthy relationship with him, not to prove and earn his love. God loves you because he loves you. God sent his son because he loves you, not because you earned the right to be loved, but because God loves you because he made you. Our faith is living and active and intimate through the power of the Spirit made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. And across this service, we've been telling the story of the resurrection appearances in the Gospel of John in those last two chapters, chapters 20 and 21. And we've tried to do it in three or four different ways. And I hope you've remembered bits of it. And it all starts at that empty tomb and that wonderful description of the grave clothes just being where they are around Jesus' body, but suddenly just there. And then the bit that was over his head being folded and separated A sign that this body wasn't stolen hastily from the tomb, but that Jesus calmly, intently, deliberately rose and folded his grave clothes and walked out of that tomb, the conquering king. And across these two chapters, we see him meet three of his disciples, Mary, Thomas and Peter. And the effect on them of meeting the risen Jesus is immediate and compelling and that's our message as Christians isn't it that we too can change we too can have hope we too can know real love when we meet the risen Lord Jesus Charles R. Swindle um, I love his name it sounds like he's dodgy doesn't it Charles Swindle don't give him don't leave your wallet out near Charles Swindle anyway Charles R. Swindle an American guy says this the devil darkness and death may swagger and boast the pangs of life will sting for a while longer. But don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He is risen. Our hope is on Christ's resurrection and Christ's resurrection alone. 
So these three encounters, let's have a look at them uh, this morning together. The first one is Mary in John chapter 20, verses eight, uh, 11 to 18. Uh, Georgia uh, kindly read that to us a bit early on. And uh, so I won't read it. If you've got it open in front of you, that would be, that'd be brilliant. She goes to the tomb. She can't find the body. She sees the angels that are there. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? She says, well, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. And then she meets Jesus. She doesn't know who he is at the beginning And then he speaks in gentle terms, woman, which is actually an affectionate term. Uh, And he says, Mary. And then she hears her name and realizes that this is Jesus risen from the dead. A lot's been written about Mary Magdalene. She's even got her own film out. Uh, It's coming out soon. I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it's any good. Um, So I won't comment on it. Um, But I hope to go and see it. But Mary was a broken woman. Uh, she was someone that met Jesus some time before. We're told that she was set free from uh, demonic possession in her life. Seven demons were in her, and Jesus set her free. He met her, delivered her, healed her, and set her free. And what's clear is that from that moment, she devoted her entire life to following Jesus Christ. This is before his death. And she actually followed his disciples and him around from place to place. And we read in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 to 3 that she and others actually provided practical support for Jesus and his 12 disciples. She followed, she served, and she was near her Lord and Savior. She witnessed his death on the cross. And what's wonderful about Mary is that on Easter Sunday when all seemed lost, we heard from Peter a moment ago, they thought Jesus was going to come and bring this new kingdom and get rid of the Romans and do all sorts of things. But then he was dead. And the disciples probably thought, well, that was a waste of time. He didn't do any of the things we thought he was going to do. They didn't get it. And yet Easter Sunday, this woman who was crushed by the death of her Lord walked to his tomb to anoint his body with oils and spices, as was the custom in that part of the world. And you get a real sense of just how broken she is. She runs to the temple, she goes there, and as she speaks with the angel, it's very much, where is he? Where is he? Just bring his body back. I just want to do one last nice thing. Boy, and you get a real sense of how lost and confused and devastated she is. But then she meets Jesus. And that wonderful, intimate moment, Mary, and she realizes who he is, his Rabboni, And then she clutches hold of him and holds on to him. Her passion for Jesus returns in an instant. And Mary Magdalene becomes the first woman in history, the first person in history, should I say, to preach the full gospel message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And she was passionate for her faith. And I wonder if we need to learn a lesson from Mary to be more passionate about our faith in the risen Jesus Christ. On the 1st of November 1934, something very special happened. Anyone know what happened then? I don't think anyone was around then, possibly. Anyway, I won't try and guess who was. Billy Graham became a Christian. Uh, Let me read to you what Billy Graham said about his own conversion to following Jesus Christ. He was, uh, this is what Billy Graham wrote about his moment where he trusted Jesus for the first time. He says, as soon as the evangelist, a man named Mordecai Ham, started his sermon, he'd gone to this mission and he didn't want to go. He thought, I'm not going there, what a lot of rubbish. As he, he says, as he opened his Bible and talked straight from his text, he spoke loudly, even though he had an amplifying system. I have no recollection of what he preached about, but I was spellbound. In some indefinable way, he was getting through to me. I was hearing another voice, almost the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
I became deeply convicted about my sinfulness and rebellion and confused. How could this evangelist be talking to me of all people? I'd been baptised as a baby. I'd gotten into mischief once in a while, but I could hardly be called wicked. I resisted the temptation to break the moral code my parents had so strictly instilled in me. I was even the vice president of my youth group in our church, although it wasn't a particularly vital organisation. But on that night, Dr. Ham finished preaching and gave the invitation to accept Christ. After all his tirades against sin, he gave us a gentle reminder. But God commands his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His song leader, Mr. Ramsey, led us in Just As I Am, four verses. And then we started another song, Almost Persuaded Now to Believe. And on the last verse of that second song, I responded. I walked to the front, feeling as if I had lead weights attached to my feet, and I stood in the place before the platform. I checked recommitment on the card I'd filled out after I'd been brought up to regard my baptism as a baby and confirmation as a profession of my faith. The difference was that this time, I was doing it on purpose. I was doing it with intention. For all my previous religious upbringing, and church activity, I believe that that was the moment I made my real commitment to Jesus Christ. And I love it, because Billy Graham, then, from that moment, became the most passionate Christian probably on planet Earth. Every moment of every day, it would seem he would try and tell someone about Jesus Christ. He was passionate. They reckon that he's told more people about Jesus than anybody else ever because he was passionate for his faith. That moment marked a passion like Mary, and he would spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel. And I wonder this morning is if we as his followers in the 21st century have that same passion for our risen Lord Jesus. I spoke with somebody recently who was lamenting their Easter Sunday service. By the way, this isn't one of those friends of mine said it moments. I'm not secretly talking about us. We're all perfect in every way obviously anyway and he was saying there we were easter sunday sharing and interacting with the easter story asking for responses from the congregation he said what was their response tepid and my friend couldn't believe it he said how can we be talking about the resurrection of the king of kings and the congregation the church's responses hmm hmm It reminds me of a conversation between an actor and a preacher. The preacher said to the actor, what is the difference between me and you? People come from miles around to hear you speak fiction. But I speak the truth and hardly anyone comes to listen. And the actor looked at him and said, I tell you the difference, passion. He said, because I present my fiction as if it's the truth. You present your truth as if it's fiction. Do we know Jesus well? Are we passionate about what we say we believe? Are we wanting to run and tell the rest of the world about the hope and life that can be found in Jesus Christ? So that's Mary, completely changed when she meets Jesus. Let's look at Thomas briefly in chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. It says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
Then Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then he goes on and says, now Thomas, from verse 24, one of the twelve was not with them uh, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out in your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. One of the great declarations in the New Testament, actually. But here he is, Thomas, shell-shocked by the death of his king, of his Lord. He watches him be crucified. He watches him be put into a tomb. And unlike the others, Thomas seems to be sliding away quicker. He's not always with the other 12. They seem to be meeting regularly at the 11, and he's um, sort of drifting off. Perhaps he's going back to work. Perhaps he's going back to his former life. Grief has overtaken him. He's become cynical, doubtful, lost. He goes back and he hears them say the most ridiculous thing ever. We've seen the Lord. Of course you haven't. He's dead. Give it up. Perhaps is what he was thinking. But then Jesus appears to him too. Real, risen Jesus. Physical body and all. And those feelings of cynical and being downhearted vanish. And he becomes overjoyed. Let's not miss his reaction in verse 27 when he says, My Lord and my God. Thomas doesn't just believe he's alive. He believes he's God. And actually, the change in Thomas is pretty amazing. Because Thomas... Uh, his conviction becomes as strong as his doubt. In fact, so strong is his conviction that Jesus had risen from the grave that he would spend the rest of his life traveling the Roman Empire and he would end in India where he would be murdered for his faith, killed for his faith in the risen Lord Jesus. What a transformation. And then our final disciple, Peter. Peter is everybody's favorite disciple. And one of the reasons we like him is because he's such a spectacular letdown. And, uh, and we, we always like to have someone we can identify with, don't we? And you think, oh yeah, I'm a bit like Peter. I also muck it up on a regular basis. But Peter was uh, Mr. Fiery, Mr. Kind of, yeah, sign me up, where do I sign? I'll go first. Yeah, I'll never let you down, Jesus. And then when push came to shove, he did just that. But can you imagine being poor old Peter? Having denied Jesus three times, having been told you're going to deny me three times. Not me, the others, but not me, Lord. Uh-uh. And then... I've never met him before in my life. He even called curses down his head. How bad is that? I feel sorry for Peter. Because don't forget, all this is unfolding around him. He's he's second to the tomb. He gets to the tomb. He also sees Jesus in the room. He watches Jesus uh, deal with Thomas. My Lord and my God. He watches all these things unfold around him. And then it's weeks later, isn't it? It's weeks later when the bit David uh, sort of did a monologue for us happens when they're back fishing again. And Jesus appears on the side on the shore and he calls them. He says, put your nets on the other side. And when probably John says, it's Jesus, Peter is the first, chucks his clothes off, dives in. Because it's almost like, I just want to get near him again. And perhaps he's even wondering, when's he going to bring it up? When's he going to bring up the fact that I denied him three times? What's he going to say? Is he going to tell me off? Am I ever going to be right with him again? It's a bit like when you tell your children off. Like you properly tell them off. Because 90% of the time you tell them off, they don't really care. Do they? But you properly tell them off. And they know you've done wrong. They sort of stand near you, don't they? And they do things like, oh, I'll hold the pen for you, Dad. 
just because they're desperate for that interaction to know that, are we, are we good? Are we okay? Or am I still in trouble? And so poor old Peter, he watches all these other resurrection appearances happening, wondering perhaps, when's it my turn? When's Jesus going to deal with the fact that I let him down three times? And then from verse 15, Jesus turns to him over breakfast, having made them food. Another reminder, by the way, that his resurrection was bodily and real. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And he says again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answers, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. And he goes on to tell him about his future and how he will die and how he will, uh, be, how he will suffer for his faith. And this conversation is difficult for Peter. It's painful. Jesus brings up that guilt that he must have been feeling. But he asked him three times, do you love me? To match the three times he denied him. He's reinstating Peter. He's bringing him back from the outside. And in fact, Peter will be the rock on which the new church will be built. And in fact, because of this interaction, Peter is the one that stood up. Peter is the one who stands and preaches and gives uh, leadership to the early church in the book of Acts, which is the most wonderful story of the church exploding into history. But Jesus, the risen Jesus, reinstates this rebellious letdown of a man who feels guilty for his sin. And such is the effect of knowing Jesus that Peter too will give his life for his king. In fact, he will be crucified just like Jesus Christ was, with one exception. He will feel too unworthy to be crucified right side up, and he will ask to be crucified upside down. And so the Gospel of John ends with a clear message, doesn't it? That the only way through life and into the next is by knowing and following the living, risen, and conquering king, Jesus the Christ. That the only solution to any of our situations is to know that the one who defeated darkness and shamed the devil, who was too mighty for the grave, that in a changing, broken world, Christ is the only hope, that he is alive forevermore. His resurrection is our hope. These stories remind us that he is our hope, even when things seem bleak. And there's one thing I feel I ought to say as we finish it's just the word brokenness. I just feel this morning that there's many people here who feel broken. And I'm not trying to, well, I'm just saying what I feel. I feel there are people here that feel genuinely broken. And I think there's probably people here in this church who hide it, who put their church face on when they come out, or their connect group face, or their prayer meeting face. The face that says, I'm all right, everything's fine. And I know you're not. I know you're not. And I know you hide it. And you really shouldn't. Because we believe in a God who deals with broken people. We believe in a God who isn't frightened of our tears. We believe in a God who isn't frightened of our anger or our questions or even our doubts. What was Thomas unless someone who doubted what God's plan was for his life? And maybe you feel like that this morning. Maybe you're feeling, well, what's God doing? What's happening? I don't understand the plan here, Lord. It's okay to feel like that. God can handle your doubts. The solution is to go back to the cross and realize that your saviour gave his life for you. That's where your hope is. 
not in the answers you so crave. And maybe you just feel broken at work or in a relationship or maybe physically or maybe just mentally. Or maybe there are things going on that you've been hiding for donkey's years and you don't know what to do with them anymore and they're just bubbling under the surface. I just think the risen Jesus Christ is the answer. It's always the answer is to know the risen Jesus Christ. If he can defeat the grave, if he can roll the stone away and defeat darkness, I promise you he can put you back together. I promise you he can heal your deepest wound. I promise you he can make you feel loved and full of hope and peaceful, perhaps for the first time in years and years and years. That's our message. That's what we say week after week because there's nothing else to say. This world is fractured and broken and we're God's people. We need to get right. We need to be brave enough to share with someone we trust in this church, to pray at the end, to cry, and to actually admit that, no, I'm not all right, actually. And actually, I do have these doubts. And actually, I have done this thing that I'm ashamed of because all those three that I've just told you about did all those things and they were all restored through meeting Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray and perhaps just sing one song as we finish. And we will have our prayer team at the front and use them. That's what they're there for, just to share and to pray. And if you want to talk with me, we can meet up during the week. Or if you'd rather talk with somebody else, um, we can arrange that as well. But if you feel broken, don't stay feeling broken. Should we pray? Father God, we just lift up, Lord... Just all these words, Father, really, and this, just the fact that we can know the risen Lord Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you love each one of us. And Father, I thank you that you gave your only son. I thank you, Lord, that whatever goes on in our lives, whatever our questions and our worries and our hurts might be, I thank you, Lord, that we can come with confidence to your son. We know, Lord, that he gave his life willingly, Lord, not for the, the best and the brightest, Lord, not for those who are perfect, He came, Lord, to find the lost and the broken. He came to find the rebellious. And Lord, we need to drop the mask, drop the act, and start putting our hands out to the King of Kings. Start shedding tears together, Lord, and start saying sorry, start asking for forgiveness, start asking for help. Father, bind us together as a church, I pray. Bind us, Lord, together as your servants, as your children, with our Father in heaven. And I ask this in his name. Amen.